one more question. This is interesting about the British legal, the legal process. Now, the reports that I've been reading have indicated that both Mr. Skirple and his daughter have been inaccessible to anyone for questions that she has a, a fiance, I, I presume from that, that, that may be even Russian and that, uh, but, but is it, is it a normal state of affairs that there is apparently no definitive information of where these two people are at this time? Or is that supposedly or allegedly to protect them? Do you find that to be curious part of this plot as well? It is extremely disturbing, and it is not a normal state of affairs at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not just being prevented from speaking to anybody. They're not able, it seems, to, to speak to their own family, mm-hmm. which is in Russia, which has been trying to contact them. Mm-hmm. It, it is also, if we come back to the questions of law and international law, it is also, on the face of it, a, a, a breach of treaties, both international treaties that Britain has entered into, the Vienna Convention, Mm -hmm. which is one in which uh, Britain is a signatory with lots of other countries, but also a bilateral treaty which Britain has with Russia, whereby the the Russian embassy and consulate is entitled to have contact with people who are Russian citizens and who are in these sort of situations in Britain. Mm -hmm. Now, Of course, the British have to protect Mr. and Ms. Skripal, and it's understandable that they might want to take precautions to protect them. But to disappear them completely and to prevent anybody, in effect, from having any sort of access to them and to conceal to the extent that it's being concealed even the most basic information now about their state of health That is extraordinary, and it is actually extremely worrying, and it is also very worrying that nobody in Britain seems to be talking or concerned about it. And then lastly, is it not unusual that they would be represented by legal counsel that would be made public as someone that's navigating them through this process or whatever? You're absolutely right. They should certainly be represented by legal counsel. Now, there was a hearing in the High Court in which the government asked for permission to take blood samples, and they were, they were represented by a government-appointed attorney on the grounds that they were very ill and too ill at that time to, to give instructions to lawyers to represent them. That clearly isn't the case any longer. There's no word of any lawyer representing them, though obviously there should be. There's no indication that any legal step has been taken on their behalf or or any legal advice given to them. And all of this is extremely worrying indeed. And one just really does worry about what is happening to them. And I say this, I say this, I don't want to, you know, sound melodramatic, but I I have never heard of a situation like this before in Britain. And once I would not have thought it possible. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, listen, we are meeting with a distinguished writer and international law expert, Alexander McCorris. He's also the editor-in-chief of the Dharan. We now turn to our second focus of tonight's show, which has to do with the false image making around foreign policy. And this next segment features John Kerry's 
misrepresentations during his Senate presentation in September of 2013 where he was arguing for the U.S. to intervene militarily in Syria following the gas attacks of August 21st of 2013. It is basically an anatomy of deceit. We find ourselves in conflicts and wars throughout the world, and this has been a recurrent theme since World War II and before. And what takes us to war are claims that often later are proven to be false or without merit. One example that we wanted to turn to today to explicate some of this propaganda or marketing to take us to war is around the Syrian gas attack back in August 21st of 2013 that, according to President Obama, crossed the red line. And John Kerry provided Senate testimony on the case in order to respond to the gas attack by making a call for war for a, a number of airstrikes, a massive airstrikes, which we will see he misrepresented as surgical strikes. For months during that time on bringing light into darkness, we were bringing to the air a number of sources that all pointed to the likelihood that the claims later made by Kerry at that September 3rd, 2013 Senate hearing regarding allegations against the Assad government were overstated and misrepresented the truth on the ground. Months later, Cy Hirsch, the Pulitzer Prize poster child for investigative reporting, published a number of articles, two or three of them, that were consistent with our doubts. Meanwhile, Secretary of State John Kerry, on that September 3rd, 2013 date, less than a month after the El Gotha gas attack of August 21st, 2013, made a number of unsubstantiated allegations that pushed the case for massive airstrike campaign against Assad based on the central unproven accusation that the Assad government was responsible for that August 21st, 2013 horrific sarin gas attack. But in his testimony, he also made a number of arguments and defenses to senators questioning the motives and the circumstances behind that would support his request, the Obama government's request to bomb Syria. And within that context, he made a number of other false representations. So the method of creating images, this image making in the public's mind is essential. You cannot go to war in this country without the support of the U.S. population. You know, Iraq is an instructive example as well, where, what, a year after the invasion of Iraq, the American public still believed three blatant misrepresentations based on the mainstream media's regurgitation of unsubstantiated uh, intelligence claims, you know, weapons of mass destruction, Saddam Hussein was behind 9-11. Saddam Hussein was harboring al-Qaeda, all proven to be false, yet all still being believed by over 50% of the U.S. population a year after the invasion. How can that be possible unless we are just constantly fed garbage that is called news and presented as absolute certainties? A lie is a false statement with the intent to deceive. A false representation or false claim is a statement that is contrary to the truth, but it may be believed by the one speaking it. Therefore, although all lies are false claims or false misrepresentations, not all false claims are lies. Some lies have built-in plausible deniability in that they are false claims, but what can be plausibly denied 
is the intent to deceive, even though it may or may not have been intentional. So the art of distracting people away from the truth without lying, what is that called? I call it deceit. Or if you can prove the intent was to deceive, that could be perjury. There's also the real possibility it was not a lie. Rather, it was a mistake. But regardless of the semantics, when someone has a significant pattern of making false claims, false representations, they are not to be trusted as a reliable source. John Kerry, over the course of a single hearing, presented a pattern of unproven allegations presented as absolute or near-absolute certainties. And at the end of the day, by omission of key facts that contradicted his claims, combined with his own misrepresentations packaged in plausibly deniable language, he took us to the brink of war. So here are some examples of that deceit from that September 3rd, 2013 hearing in front of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Okay, so just to be clear, we're talking about the Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing on September 3rd, 2013. This was to debate the possible authorization of U.S. military action against the Syrian government for the gas attack we mentioned, featuring testimony by Secretary of State John Kerry, Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel, and General Martin Dempsey, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time of this testimony. The first falsehood or inflated claim that I wanted to address had to do with the certainty of John Kerry's claim that it was the Assad government that was responsible for this gas attack. Yet there was not a level of evidence that supported that, that certainty that he claimed, that Assad did it. In fact, these are the words of John Kerry. Quote, the Assad regime, and only, undeniably, the Assad regime, unleashed an outrageous chemical attack against its own citizens. End quote. Again, quote, I repeat here again today that only the most willful desire to avoid reality can assert that this did not occur as described or that the regime did not do it. It did happen, and the Assad regime did it. End quote. Okay? So... It was interesting to me. I, I watched the hearings. I read the transcript several times as well in preparing this information some years ago. And I will never forget the condescending tone in which John Kerry ridiculed anyone who did not believe his claim of Assad responsibility, despite the fact that there was a zero evidence was being presented to suggest the truthfulness of it. So a couple of things to understand here. When the testimony by John Kerry occurred, the same day or earlier, by a day or two, they had released from the White House, not from the intelligence, NIE, the National Intelligence Estimate, but from the White House, a document of pictures and arguing that the Assad government did it. The fact that it did not come from intelligence, the NIE, the National Intelligence Estimate, in which, if it did, it would then have been vetted by all of the intelligence agencies. They all would have signed off on it. Or if there was any dissent, they would present that dissent within that document. That's how an NIE works. So even though a president or whatever wants to use an NIE, the NIE has both the pros and cons, if there are cons. If there is uniform agreement, that would be reflected in the NIE as well. But instead, the first curious thing is why would you not have your intelligence draw up these documents about the call to war? That was very suspect, okay? It turned out that the absolute certainty that he claimed of the missiles being sent by 
the pictures and the claims of their document from the White House that Kerry presented actually came under scrutiny by physicist Dr. Theodore Postel and Richard Lloyd. These two physicists showed how what they are alleging was not physically possible in the realm of physics as far as, you know, how the distance of how far it could travel or things of that type of caliber that would discredit the deal from a science perspective. So just to be clear, we were not saying that we knew who did it, but what we're saying is that the absolute certainty that I just shared from Kerry's own words was baloney. There was not that absolute certainty because the evidence didn't support that absolute certainty. And Postal's and Richard Lloyd's critique of it certainly wasn't presented to the American public, and it certainly has not been contradicted since and brought forth in the, what, seven years since that, that attack occurred. It's almost seven years to the date. So that was the first major misrepresentation that John Kerry presented as an absolute certainty. Secondly, the evidence that was contrary to the Assad government being responsible for that attack. Why would they do that when, in fact, the Assad government had the military upper hand in the conflict well before the spring of 2013? So there was no military need, even if you were a maniac, to use a sarin gas, okay? And Kerry misrepresented that, too. He indicated that there was not such an upper hand being exhibited by Assad, but it clearly was. This is validated by Seymour Hersh's work as well. Uh, the political risk would be overwhelming if, in fact, it was the Assad government that did it, and it was proven that it was. So that's the second false representation indication. They have the upper hand. The political risk would be overwhelming. And the UN inspectors were welcomed by Assad government, had just arrived three days earlier to the, investigate Khan al-Assad. That was the, the, you know, the gas attack that occurred in March of 2013 that was blamed on Assad. But in fact, there was, uh, with absolute certainty, once again, that, that again, after the UN came to the scene to check that out, there was not that certainty at all. So uh, all of those things suggest that there was no motivation for them to, to have such a strike. The motivation lied with who? It lied with the opposition, which was mainly spearheaded by jihadists, and they were losing, and they wanted, and they knew Obama had talked about the red line, and they knew that any type of gas attack could present evidence to get the United States involved. So all of the motivations were pointed in the opposite direction from the conclusions that Kerry would have you believe. So another claim, the third claim that, that Kerry made, he said, we are certain that none of the opposition has the weapons or capacity to affect a strike of this scale. In other words, the opposition does not have access to sarin gas or chemical weapons or the capacity of an effect of a strike of this scale, according to John Kerry. This is, again, his September 2013 testimony. In fact, we reported, and it's a matter of, of, of public record, that security forces found a two-kilogram cylinder with sarin gas after searching the homes of Syrian militants from the al-Qaeda-linked al-Nusr front who were previously detained. That was according to Turkish media reports. The gas was reportedly going to be used in a bomb, the sarin gas was found in the homes of suspected Syrian Islamists detained in the southern provinces 
of Adana and Mercia, those are cities in Turkey, I believe, following a search by Turkish police. And this was back in the last week or so of May of 2013, just a month or two before the strike, right? And so the reports were to that effect. The gas was allegedly going to be used to carry out an attack in the southern Turkish city of Adana. On Monday, uh, back again in uh, the end of May, Turkish special anti-terror forces arrested 12 suspected members of the Al-Nazra Front, the Al-Qaeda-affiliated group, which had been dubbed the most aggressive and successful arm of the Syrian rebels. The group was designated a terrorist organization by the United States in December of 2012. So this is from a report uh, that you can also find online. Turkey finds sarin gas in homes of suspected Syrian Islamists. Clearly, this is public information. They clearly had the means. They had two kilograms of sarin gas. So Kerry's claim was a misrepresentation, clearly a misrepresentation. Fourthly, Senator Barbara Boxer questioned John Kerry. John Kerry denied there was any dissent within the intel community regarding whether there was any doubt it was the Syrian government that launched that attack. In Senator Boxer's words, quote, but my question is, was there any argument about this fact that they agree that there's high confidence that these weapons were used by the Assad regime? Was there any debate? I mean, there was debate. Was there any dissent between the various agencies? Question, John Kerry. The intelligence community represented by DNI Clapper has released a public statement unclassified, available for all to see, in which they make their judgment with high confidence that the facts as they have set forth, so, you know, I think that speaks for itself. So he's not really denying, but he's claiming this report by DNI Clapper. But once again, this is not a national intelligence estimate that we're talking about. Senator Boxer, she, she goes on, she goes, well, I'm going to press a little bit harder here, John, talking to Kerry here. But Mr. Secretary, if I can, out of all of the different agencies, because I rem remember in Iraq, sure, eventually the word came down, everyone agreed, but then we found out there was, there was disagreement, kind of after the fact, if you will, is what she's saying. To your knowledge, these are her words, did they all come to the same conclusion, the various intelligence agencies? Secretary Kerry, to my knowledge, I have no knowledge of any agency that was a dissenter or anybody who had, you know, an alternative theory. And I do know, I think it's safe to say that they had a whole team that ran a scenario to try to test their theory to see if there was any possibility they could come up with an alternative view as to who might have done it. And the answer is they could not. So, you know, we evidently, the most knowledgeable and trustworthy representative of the Obama administration this is John Kerry. He was the former chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee for six years. His intelligence experience is immense. Presumably, I would suggest, had access to all classified material and presumably would know if there was any dissenting opinions that would challenge the certainty in which Kerry is accusing the government. Okay? In fact, there was. Seymour Hersh came out later acknowledging all of that dissent and documented. And again, to go back to the important fact why did the intelligence summary come from the White House rather than the National Intelligence Estimate if everyone agreed? And as I say, the National Intelligence Estimate includes potential dissent. Why not build a stronger case by going that route rather than some four-page release unsigned by those same authorities? Okay, 
So again, you can look at Hirsch's articles for a devastating challenge to this false claim. Fifth claim. Throughout the testimony, John Kerry stated, endorsed the position stated by General Dempsey that we don't want to tip the scales on the ground. The facts on the ground were clearly that Assad was gaining the upper hand. Certainly, a U.S. bombing intervention would have stemmed the tide. Kerry would only acknowledge that that might be a secondary, quote-unquote, downstream effect, but that the knocking out of chemical weapons was the primary motive, this kind of surgical strike type of idea. This is an important issue in that why, why would Syria commit a gas attack right under the nose of the U.N. inspection team that we mentioned that was investigating that June 2013 gas attack, and especially why, when they did have clearly the, the, uh, the upper hand of the military conflict, why would they uh, then turn to, to these gas attacks? Meanwhile, the same logic, the motive for Syrian rebels, is, as we said before, because they were losing and because they were mainly armed by the Gulf monarchies of Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and, and Turkey, all supported by the U.S. and its Western allies. They wanted to get the U.S. involved by a, a false flag attack. That's a, definitely a, a, a potential motive. So Jean Shaheen, she's the Democrat from New Hampshire, asked, but according to the president in your testimony, we don't want to tip this, the, the scales on the ground. And again, John Kerry and, and General Dempsey misrepresent the truth, indicating that they are not using the American military to tip the scale. In other words, the resolution is not asking for, for permission for the president to be able to use the U.S. armed forces to overthrow the regime, is what they were claiming. But again, this is contradicted by uh, Seymour Hersh's work. He documents how there were these extensive plans that were much, much larger than those being presented to the Senate Intelligence or inferring to the Intelligence Committee. And it was going to be a massive bombing that included infrastructure and all of this stuff. So apparently there were these plans. They were, they were ready to roll. They were, they were hours away from this attack here. And uh, so there's the data that suggests that this was also then a lie to misrepresent the side. You know, once you get into one of these conflicts, also the acceleration of everything is self-serving as well. And then finally, the fifth or sixth false claim. I'm losing track. There's so many. When questioned about the impression that the opposition has become infiltrated by al-Qaeda, Kerry, amazingly, he denies it. He argues that, that that was not the case. In fact, arguably, there would, there would have been no military opposition strength without al-Qaeda and without these horrific terrorists being the backbone of this deal. The whole moderate opposition was a myth the whole time. And this is really the key to understanding Syria. It's the big lie. Kerry claims the opposition increasingly was becoming more defined by its moderation. And Senator Ron Johnson challenges him. He's a Republican from Wisconsin. What do you know about the opposition? I mean, we have been tracking them for the last two years. I mean, he says, and this is more of an impression I have as opposed to any exact knowledge, but the opposition was more West-leaning, more moderate, more democratic, but as time has gone by, it's degraded and become more infiltrated by al-Qaeda. What has happened, question mark? Well, Kerry says, no, that's actually not true, he says. It's basically incorrect. Well, we were reporting on bringing light into darkness months before the gas attack, this very deal. 
that there was this incredible armed opposition, the, the point of the spear, if you will, were all al-Qaeda or some form of jihadist-oriented type terrorist groups. Uh, you can find it in, even in CNN reporting, New York Times reporting, those, those types of things. Yet Kerry's here saying, no, 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 it's, it's uh, not the case at all. So those are the, you know, if you look at just one of these misrepresentations without the context of the others, the deceit does not appear necessarily in, intentional, and the tendency would be to think of it as a mistaken point of view, perhaps. However, when taken all together, it becomes overwhelming, at least to me, that it's very difficult for me to believe that Sec Secretary of State John Kerry, one, our, one of our most uh, decorated uh, intelligence minds, based on his experience not just as a veteran, but also on the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, would not have known what, what we kind of breezed through here. This was all public information being kept from the American public in order to make the case for this bombing. Um, this kind of fixing the facts around the policy rather than primarily pursuing the truth of the matter once again is the deal here. But this, and I guess to kind of end this segment, worst was the fact that he led us down a path that took us within the eyelash of another unjustified war. If it was not for the UK voting down their resolution to endorse military action just days before the Senate hearing, I really doubt President Obama would have even sent John Kerry to make the administration's case to go to war. I believe Obama went to Congress for endorsement to provide cover for his own administration's desire to go to war so he could say that the Congress had endorsed it, which it should, and that's kind of how our law is supposed to work, but the UK Parliament vote had denied a similar attack uh, in the UK. But thankfully, we did not go to war. As Seymour Hirsch argues, the Joint Chiefs of Staff were against it, and there was a plenty of intelligence dissent as well, despite Kerry's misrepresentation that there was no intelligence dissent. And I just present this information because this is what gets us into different wars all the time. We, we, we were documenting how they presented the Russian bounty story last week. A number of examples that we, we have presented over the years that I'm not going to go back over is basically there to see unless you don't want to see it, okay? And that's what the mass media apparently does not want to see it, that they never uh, or very rarely cover the other side of the coin of these uh, contradictions that we are bringing forth on this show tonight regarding the Syrian deal. We'll be back after this. To study the content of this show, you can access this show at pedrogatos.org along with all other previous post-COVID shows. We'll see you next week. We take you out with Land of Naivety.